2: I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer, and now, stupid healthcare. And I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Out of Patience. I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Malik Majmadar. He's the chief medical officer of a company called BioFormers, but he's got this crazy, amazing backstory. And a special shout-out to a former guest on the show, Grace Vinton, for making the first date happen. Not only do we have a million things in common just because we work in the same industry and this this Melrose plays Venn diagram of all of us, he's got boy-girl twins, There's nothing more of a bonding moment between dads when you have to deal with having boy-girl twins. So we nerd out on all the life hacks of what we could possibly have gotten right or wrong, not knowing what we were doing at the same time, but we have healthy, happy boy-girl twins as we speak on the show today. He has some fascinating perspectives on what he said, the art of medicine versus the business of medicine and how the U.S. versus global market on stuff that's awesome over here doesn't always get to people over there. Not okay. He was born in India, and he became the first doctor in his family. And what got him into medicine was he was a paramedic, which is, I think, an unsung, heroic volunteer gesture of humanity in this country. The unsung heroes of paramedics. Thank you so much for everyone listening who happens to be or knows someone that is a paramedic. He got into football training and that was his trigger to love science and get into what he called hacking medicine, which was something he learned about at Harvard. He went on to traverse the country at Northwestern and Johns Hopkins and Harvard and Brigham and Women's Hospital He went on to work for Amazon and did some really cool things there, and then left to start a company, Bioformis. His vision for the future, and I agree with this, is that our home can save our life. But the creepiness of the device I shall not name, because she's over there and will yell at me for saying her name, what do we trust? How do we know? Data privacy, all that jargony stuff. But we really break it down, have a fabulous conversation. I'm sure you're going to love it. So here he is, Dr. Malik Majumdar. Enjoy the show. Malik, welcome to Out of Patience. Well, thank you for having me. A special shout out to our dear friend Grace Vinton for making this connection. Grace, a former guest on the show and probably a future guest on the show again. That's great. Yeah, I love Grace. How do you know her?
1: I actually met her for the first time in person at a conference, a healthcare conference in Miami last week through Amandola Communications. So she actually was helping with my media schedule. Uh, so it was great.
2: I noticed you have two patents. Does she have anything to do with your patents? <laughs> no, but hopefully in the future, we can come up with new patents over beers. I, I mean, I want to start first because if there, if we have a million things in common, the most important is that we are fathers of boy-girl twins.
1: Yes, absolutely. Blessed to be father of uh, boy-girl twins, but also physically exhausted.
2: So I'm going to probably get your head nodding here on the radio, but the biggest question we always got asked when they were younger was... Are they identical?
1: Right, that's right. Exactly. Everybody always says that, right? And uh well clearly
2: Except for the clearly. gonads, they're exactly the same. <laughs> that's
1: right. They couldn't they couldn't be more different, let me tell you that.
2: Exactly. Uh,
1: everything from personality to everything in the world. It's incredible actually how
2: Yeah, how or the other are. one is um what's it like raising twins? Like, I don't know. <laughs> what am I comparing this against?
1: Interesting you say that actually, right? I think we have so many family members and they all have two kids and we have three, right? And then they're always like, well, it can't be that bad, right? It's just and like, just wait till you actually go through it, trying to do diaper changes to potty training, to everything, sleep training, all that stuff at once with two of them, it's, just, it's absolutely, it's exponentially different than two kids.
2: <laughs> Yeah, the the parent of twins life hack is get them on the same schedule as soon as possible, right. and be militant. Right. And if they're hungry, screw it; they have to eat the same time.
1: So it's, it's funny. So I think I uh, did not realize that early on, but my wife, she I think read a couple of books or must listen to some podcasts, but she was absolutely adamant about that one thing, and it's incredible. Uh, thank God we did it because uh, they are on the same schedule now, and it, it, it makes all the difference in the world.
2: And how old are they as of this recording?
1: Yeah, so they're three years old, and we also have a five-year-old son who's an older child. So yeah, so it's, it's three, so here's the thing, three kids under three when the pandemic started. Think about that for a second.
2: God bless you, so my our, friend, wow.
1: Our, our, yeah, our pair left to go back to Argentina, and school shut down, and then museums shut down, parks shut down, it's all in Washington, we're still in Washington at the time. And my wife took care of all three of them at home alone for an entire year. And then one day she just lost it. <laughs> She's like, I am done. <laughs> so we immediately moved back to the East
2: Coast. There's no hallmarker to make the pandemic any better for anyone under any circumstance. So you got your start a long time ago. Like, was this something you were like, you looked at the stars as a kid and said, I want to be a doctor one day.
1: No, no. For me, it was actually very different, uh, Matthew. Yeah, uh, you know, I actually, so most of may or may not know this, but I actually grew up in India. And I'm the first physician in my family.
2: That's amazing.
1: So growing up, my dad's an engineer. My brother became a, went to engineering school. Uh, so when I came to the U.S., I initially thought, I want to be an engineer. And then I realized I suck at it.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, math was not my forte, and neither was uh, computer science. So the way I got into, I like biology a lot. So I did a, you know biochemistry major. But then what got me to medicine was actually I became a paramedic.
2: So I started to do ambulance rides. Oh, Wow thank you for that service that's amazing work
1: yeah in college you know it was really i just wanted to really understand what this whole thing was all about i wanted to really experience it before i de- decided to pursue it a career in it so there are two things i became a trainer for the football team for maryland and then i did the paramedic rides and between those two i truly truly just loved it so that that's actually what my genesis to medicine
2: was it hard to realize that football in america was not football in india
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. good one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's funny, you know, I still call it, you know, it took me, it took me years to actually call it, you know, soccer.
2: Right. <laughs> it's just so natural, right? So. We just have to mess everything up in this country.
1: Metric system. Yes. Wrong side of the road. That yes. was another big one. I mean, luckily I was only 14 when I moved here, so I hadn't learned how to drive yet. But yeah, the wrong side of the road thing was also threw us off.
2: <laughs> we do pizza really well. That's kind of the one thing you can really own in this country. In certain cities, we do pizza really well. That's about it. <laughs> maybe jazz music because we kind of invented jazz music in this country. Yeah. I'm going to go with pizza and jazz music.
1: Can't go wrong with pizza.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's fascinating. I have a friend who was a paramedic when I was in college and he used to tell me all these things I shouldn't have known. Like the joy routes down Broadway <laughs> at three in the morning, just because it's they could. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. some absolutely crazy stories of,
1: uh, you know, more, more, uh, really incredible sacrifice. And, in, uh, service to the country. I mean, paramedics, I mean, they go in dangerous situations, you know, the night, they're, it is incredible, actually, how, how much of community benefit
2: they provide. I mean, it really is like an under-recognized heroism if you choose to. It's all volunteer. People don't realize that. And, That's right. That's you know, right. And, and it's like, you know, when you're a volunteer firefighter, this is a real thing, real risk, and it's just another one of those, like, unsung right. stories of people taking extraordinary actions. in this culture of we versus me that's right
1: absolutely i agree and i think look i didn't know much about the field of paramedicine at all till i you know just volunteered and it's it's amazing my my i have a vivid memory of this one specific scenario i remember it was in the late evening i was gonna arrive at the ambulance there was a call for some domestic violence and we arrived there first and i started to get out of the, the ambulance and they said oh you can't go in i'm like what do you mean it's like no, no, we have to wait for the police to come first because we actually don't know if the scene is safe. And turns out that it wasn't safe. There was somebody with a knife inside this apartment building and we had to wait till the police cleared the area and then we had to go help the lady. And I was like, that, and that's just one example, but like there's so many of scenarios that they put themselves in harm's way and it really is incredible service. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's very under-recognized what they do. Uh, and they're quite frankly, you know, people always say emergency medicine, emergency department is the place where medicine really starts Well, quite frankly, it's actually not, it's actually the EMS system, right. where they really start actually right intervening on the patients. And quite frankly, they're extremely skilled I and mean, they have to put all these procedures and IV lines in, in a moving ambulance, right? We actually have the luxuries of monitors and equipment and imaging and all these things in a hospital setting. So it is It's incredible, it's an incredible profession.
2: So I'm assuming that as a football trainer and a paramedic, it further gave you validation that your choice to leave engineering was a good one.
1: That's right, absolutely. I love the, the, the adrenaline part is one part, but I love the, I mean, it sounds sound sappy, but love the, just the ability to actually, actually help people in vulnerable moments, really understand being a little bit nerdy, physiology and all the things that go with it. So yeah, I, I just fell in love with it.
2: So what got you to Northwestern?
1: Yeah, you know, I uh, classic college kid, right? Wanted to get away from family <laughs> a, little, <laughs> a, a, a little bit. And you know, when I in- interviewed and toured uh, the campus, which again, Northwestern's undergraduate campus is actually absolutely gorgeous in Evanston, but this medical school was in downtown Chicago. but It really wasn't downtown Chicago. So I was like next to Lakeshore Drive. And so I just, yeah, I just fell in love with it. And um, it was a, probably the best four years I've had
2: in my life. So where did you complete your residency?
1: So, medical school is Northwestern. I did my residency at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore.
2: And what did you specialize in? What, what, where did you sort of see the, the, North, the, the shiny objects?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I had an interesting decision making. So, because of my background in paramedicine and I spent a year in the trauma bay at Hopkins before med school, I thought I was going to pursue emergency medicine all along until I got to my fourth year of medical school and I really absolutely fell in love with cardiology for many different reasons. But so when I did my residency training with an internal medicine at Hopkins, and then I went to pursue cardiology at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston.
2: So I love the, to ask the question, like, when did you first realize that the word innovation was just syllables? Yep. <laughs> good, uh, good point.
1: You know, it's a great question. I, I got into this whole world of digital health and technology innovation or health tech, what you want to call it, uh, through serendipity. And I know you had, if I recall correctly, a guest, Dr. Alan Russell, a little while ago.
2: Love Alan the, from Amgen, great guy, great show. That's
1: right, so I knew Alan when he was still at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, so it's a small world of innovation, as you call it. So what it was, you know, I was doing, and this is crazy for your audience, I was doing work on mouse models when I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship at, at Harvard and uh, Mass General and then we had to go across the river to MIT to pick up some nanoparticles and i came across this student group at MIT called hacking medicine and i was like what in the world is hacking medicine <laughs> i never heard of this before it sounds kind of crazy but you know what i was recently married no kids i'm like let me go check it out so i go to this event and i don't know there was like 70 to 80 people that showed up at this hacking medicine event and there were literally zero doctors Zero nurses, zero any any healthcare professionals, but the kids were incredibly excited and passionate about changing the healthcare system. And something about it just, uh, just stuck with me. I was like, "This is the the energy, the passion, the talent was immense, but the, the, there was a naivety about understanding of the healthcare system, how it works, and also what how physicians and nurses treat patients and the workflows and all the details of it." But again, enough to get me excited enough to actually change career paths. I gave up my uh, research career at MGH and um, actually pivoted career paths. And that's sort of the first time I got into uh, healthcare innovation.
2: I feel like that's the today equivalent of all these conferences about healthcare with no patients speaking at them.
1: That's right. I, it's, it's a great point, Matthew. That's right. I think we talk so much about patient engagement, medication adherence you know, patient quality of life, but there's nobody, usually there's nobody at the table or the podium or the panel actually commenting what it actually means to them. One of the lessons I've learned in the last few years is as physicians, we always talk about, uh, you know, what's called uh, patient outcomes. We always rely on death or hospitalizations. But when we talk to patients, those are not the things they care about. This is more like, can I actually walk down the street? Can I live without pain? Can I actually have a social, you know, be social, not be socially isolated or attend my granddaughter's wedding? And there's so many other factors that matter that it's not always about did I go to the emergency room once a year? Right? So I think, I think we missed the boat on that
2: one. Well, yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed 26 years ago with brain cancer in the 90s, and back then it was like you love or you die. There was no delta between life and death. Like, what matters mm-hmm. to you? It wasn't even a question they asked you. you just, you're lucky to be here. Shut up. right? That was kind of the right. you know, the, the walk-it-off model of, of, yeah, right. of you, life in the, in the 90s.
1: And as you know, right? I mean, look, you know what I do, but I think the, the, the incredible journey survivors, cancer survivors go through around, with chemotherapy or just the nausea, the pain, all all those things matter so much to just your personal, your own life, but also your family and caregiver's life. I think a lot of times in in medicine, we we fail to appreciate all those factors.
2: I feel like my big realization that no one really cared about me. And again, this was 26 years ago, things are a little better was when they didn't really recognize the fact that I wasn't 80 years old with cancer. I was 21 with cancer. And one of the huge successes we fought for as advocates in the 2000s was just that age recognition is tantamount the quality of care
1: you know this is the one the the one part of medicine is interesting which is um you know i think you i think you're right in the 2000s or soon after that they started formally started teaching empathy in medicine as courses how do you actually relate to your patients and to your point age being such a major factor because we're just so used to treating the elderly sometimes forget that when you have somebody younger in front of you, how do you relate to them? How do you communicate them actually drives a lot of the quality of care and outcomes, quite frankly, because, you know, relationship building and trust building is so critical to, the, to this, this is the patient-doctor relationship. I remember, uh, you know, in, in medical school, some of the greatest doctors that I, you know, I looked at role models were not the ones who with the best diagnosticians, who just, you know, were brilliant, but more people who just, somehow found a way to get down to the level of the patient. They would sit down in their bed, talk about video games or cars or TV shows. This is related to them in a way that just felt so natural. And they just became buddies. Like quite frankly, we would have conversations about nothing to do with medicine. And, and, and the patient would just then start, you know, building this trust and relationship that was so cherished. And I think that, that's some of those things in medicine I think I, I still miss, actually.
2: We're gonna take a quick break and be right back to talk about how your home will save your life one day. We're back and I wanted to talk to you about something. I I don't think I made this up, but I like the way it sounds, trust culture in medicine. And with this age of genetics and all these new fancy syllables and how the doctors know everything when it's possible to have 80,000 drugs now, where are we at culturally to appreciate that medicine in the next decade is less about what you have inside your body from a tumor perspective and more about what you have inside your body from a genetic perspective?
1: Great question. I think, just just to go back to the first question of trust, I think you're definitely right that we're in an information age. And despite going through years and years of school and training, it's almost impossible for anybody to keep up with the advances in medicine, the literature, the publications, and all, all, all those things. So I think we're in an age where the, the really great physicians will leverage technology and augment themselves through other means, but what they're, they should excel at is that relationship building, the trust they build with their patients and their caregivers and how they empathize and the delivery of the care. And the information science part of it, they should leverage all the tools available, at their disposals to provide great quality care. One of the t- topics we may or may not touch on today, but I think I want to bring it up as just a sort of passionate topic for me, is as far as trust goes, the quality of care in the U.S. and globally. What I mean by that is because of the information age, there's so many advances and so many new discoveries in medicine. What's a shame is that not all of those advances actually get to patients. There's data, there's really compelling data in the US that the quality of care you deliver, if you look at just geographically nationally, is highly variable between different zip codes. And overall, as a country, for a lot of diseases like complex, like heart failure, cancer, even just heart attacks, it's pretty dismal, quite frankly. And that's that's a problem I think we have to solve, not only to sort of gain the trust of our patients. But also to deliver the quality of care, but also get the outcomes we normally see in publications that we don't see in real life.
2: Right, and trust and empathy go hand in hand. My perspective on this, and I've been very vocal about this, is the more we move towards our syllables of molecular diagnostics and genomic mm-hmm. testing, and all, there's more skepticism on the part. Yep of the consumer yeah. entering the healthcare system. So the empathy of helping them understand what trust right. even, what are you doing to my body? What are you taking my blood out and doing these things to it? Like, right. it's very different than here's napalm to cure cancer. What's your take on empathy as a sort of pedagogical value in med school scaling more?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point you make there, which is I think in some ways, sophisticated technology seems like, you know, you're supposed to get more trust, like, oh, wow, this is like a really advanced technology you're using to test something really molecular, like you're talking molecular at the really high resolution level in my body. The reality is that what physicians or the health community doesn't talk about sometimes, which they should openly, is we don't always know how to interpret that data. (laughs) And we don't have a frank dialogue about this test. Sure, it's more high resolution and advanced and we can have one or two things we want to get out of it, but all the other information we are still learning at the same time you're learning and then as you communicate some of those things that uncertainties and it's a very it's a really difficult thing to do for anybody to communicate uncertainties and the reality is that you have to know and empathetically know your patient well enough to know their profile some patients love the details they want to know the nitty gritty and where the uncertainty lies some patients find that to be extremely anxiety provoking and they don't want to know all the details they just want to know the high level what matters to them and their bodies, but not all this. I think you have to really personalize how you communicate and what you communicate to your patients so you drive the best benefit. Cause I, I think I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all approach at all.
2: Yeah. And then we could do a whole other like 11 D podcast on physician fatigue and the scrunching seven minute metaphor and how you can't do these things and you want to live the Hippocratic Oath, but sometimes it just gets so so impossible, let alone having patients be totally scared, totally vulnerable, and out of a state of complete distrust when they come from certain communities.
1: Yeah, and part of this, again, is marrying the, the, the art of medicine with the business of medicine is, to your point, some of these things just quite frankly just take time, right? You just have to spend that much-needed time with your patients in whatever vulnerable moment they're in to actually communicate these things effectively. And the reality of the world is that with the seven minutes or the 15 minute physical, you just can't spend that kind of quality time. So I think this whole resurgence to primary care, quite frankly, is in some ways a good thing to say, can we just put the primary care doctor in the center of the universe? And say they have the relationship, they can spend the time they need to build that. And then over time, if you do that well, you actually will reduce the use of specialty care and complications and disease progression but I think it'll require a long time to reverse some of the things we've done in the US healthcare system for the last you know, decades.
2: So I wanna take that theme and flip it to the consumer side because we, we alluded to this about how the future of healthcare is in your home, your house might save you one day, uh, care at home is here to stay, the pandemic showed us, we never have to really leave our homes, but I can't help but mention the fact that you came from Amazon and the device that shall not be named because she will get angry and <laughs> activating herself because she's over there in the corner is now potentially the future of try to not die from something. Can you talk about the evolution of the the home device as a potentially more trustworthy vehicle for communication?
1: Yeah, I know know, there's so much opportunity for care in the home. And that's all the way from contactless devices, always-on listening devices. You can talk about sensors and diagnostics, all these sort of things in the home. Just to go back to Amazon for one, day, one, one minute here, I think the, what's amazing about Amazon and the experience that I have there is they truly are extremely customer obsessed company and the, the starting point for everything they do is really to think about listening to their consumers and what their needs are. So in the pandemic, especially if you think about segments of the population, the elderly, the isolated, or, or just uh, others who just may be sick, they couldn't get access to care as it normally needed. And the reality is that so many people in the US avoided care during the pandemic. Now think about all those individuals who avoided care and delayed care and the complications that they suffered from. The ability to actually communicate and able to intervene from the home is I think incredibly powerful. And I think in the, you know, the junior's out of the bottle now. I don't think we can put it back again. So I think there will be a, a wider scale adoption of technologies to drive care in the home. But I do believe the trust and privacy aspects have to be paramount, partly because there is an assumption built in that, oh, everybody will want convenience. And I think there's a, it's a convenience is a double-edged sword, right? Convenience comes at the risk of potentially some level of giving up a privacy and security. Right. So that's the, that's the kind of Gmail model, right? Like, hey, I love certain interesting smart things that my mail server does for me to simplify my workload. At the same time, I'm allowing it to read my emails to do that for me. Right. So if I want to drive convenience at home through whatever have you, any smart home product, but I think the the, I think, and I use the word not people, but patients who are suffering from a medical condition and have a poor quality of life will make that trade off because they will benefit from it. Whereas a completely healthy individual may prioritize their privacy above the convenience of actually medical help, right? So I think it's totally so individual to the patient, but the ability to be able to do that from the home is I think the innovation that we need.
2: So like opt-in prevention.
1: It has to be opt-in, right? No questions, doubts about that one. It has to be opt-in and it's not an opt-in one time. It's opt-in out, opt-out at your leisure, right? Right. Some days I want to, somebody to take care of me. They'll like, say, I feel perfectly fine. I don't want to be listening. So I think it's, you have to give the customers that level of control of their health And any health related items
2: there's one of the scenes in one of the iron man movies where he falls down and the 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 jarvis says detecting a hemorrhage he's like yeah i felt that one right (laughs) (laughs) are we gonna get a point where people are wearing suits that detect things and tell them what's going on
1: well i think what you're getting at i mean i think there's a there's a fine line between overburdening an individual over sensing and going too far right but i think there's so much low hanging fruit about prevention, symptom management, diagnosis, that just avoids what I call unavoidable, unnecessary complications of care or disease or care. That I think those are ones that I don't think there's much controversy around those. Like look at an example. For example, if you look at stroke, it's actually very difficult for an average human being, an average person to just know and experience something, is this a stroke or not? But the consequences of not detecting the stroke early on are immense in terms of just quality of life and rehab. So this is a, that, that to me is a great example of something where some sort of technology in the home can absolutely assist you in getting an uh, understanding. Could this be a stroke or not to seek help earlier? To me is that kind of simple and life threatening things that there's no controversy about right? It's all the other things around like low risk stuff that people can, you know, ask, is this really helpful or not? Am I going to overdiagnose? Are I going to overtreat, you know, a rash, or maybe you have something like a pneumonia. But I think there's a lot of opportunities above that that are almost non-controversial.
2: So you've been well-informed as a global citizen about like, pretty much everything we're talking about and even more. Can you give me the elevator pitch on what got you to co-found Bioformis and be their chief medical officer?
1: Sure. I think the the, the premise of our Bioformis when you know, Kuldeep and I were starting this six years ago now was this exact I- idea that could you detect and prevent illness before it occurs. And the story I always tell is you know, my grandfather died in his sleep at the age of 55. And, you know, who knows what exactly happened, but as a family, we always said he was a heart attack, right? He died in his sleep. That's the most common cause, at least in India of death certain cardiac arrest so it turns out to me from my perspective there's lots and lots of ways we can not only prevent disease but more importantly detect early signs of something happening in your body or in your life that we could pick up that just gives you that early warning signal signals that can you get this checked out and you avoid a lot of jargon morbidity mortality or just just death and uh, poor quality of life so to me, that's a, that's what the genesis. And then we said, well, okay, so that's interesting. What are the right populations in which to apply that to? So, and what are the ingredients to make that a success? So there are two things that we focused on. How do you leverage the new world of machine learning, AI? We're going to call it data science. How do you leverage these new technologies? And then how do you combine that with the right clinical disease prop area to really drive the most amount of impact? And for us, that happened to be heart disease and 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 technology. Well done. Bravo. Thank
2: you. Thank
1: you. It's a long journey though, Matthew, right? So we're not there yet. We're still on our, hopefully we're in a third base, a second base now, but it's a long road.
2: I like to conclude by just reminding the listeners, historically, we're so much better off than we used to be. And while nothing will ever really be perfect, it's a whole lot better to have the set of problems today we do than the ones we did in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s.
1: Absolutely, I think, I think it's a good reminder, and you always say this, it's a good reminder actually, which is that there's so much room for improvement. However, if you look at just one example of heart disease, there's been close to a 80% reduction in premature death from heart disease through all the medical discoveries and innovations we've had over the years. So we've made a lot of improvement, we've a long way to go.
2: We finally invented something that works. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Malik Majbadar is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Bioformis. A special thanks again to Grace Vitton for making the date happen. Thank you so much for coming on Out of Patients.
1: Matthew, so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
2: That's all for now. If you like the
1: show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.